Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. There's lots to talk about tonight. I want to talk about breaking news. Uh, the Board of Deputies of British Jews, which claims to be the leadership of the Jewish community in Britain. It's not my business whether they are or are not the actual leadership, though I do see lots of dissident Jewish voices uh, on social media, making it clear that the Board of Deputies does not speak for them. But that's a matter for the Jewish community. Judaism is a religion. Its adherents, Jews, are a religious group. All religious groups have to be honored, treasured, cherished, and protected here in a free country, a democracy like ours. But no religious group has the right to dictate policy and membership of any political party. Now, to be fair, their list of 10 demands, 10 commandments, I think they wanted us to call them, so there you are, BOD, Ten Commandments from Britain's Jewish Community to the British Labour Party, were breathtaking in their audacity. Chutzpah doesn't begin to describe it. Imagine my surprise then, when every single candidate for the leadership of the Labour Party to succeed Jeremy Corbyn immediately in Emily Thornberry, the Shadow Foreign Secretary's words, fell onto their hands and knees in supplication. Well, a party that allows a small religious minority to dictate its policies and dictate whom, by name, uh, it may be allowed to admit into membership is not a party that is likely to thrive. It will not thrive even in the sense uh, that the people doing the supplicating hope it will not be the end of the war against the Labour Party, because this issue of anti-Semitism has been weaponized with the purpose of destroying any meaningful Labour Party. Of course, a Labour Party like Tony Blair's Labour Party, there will always be space for that. But if the Labour Party goes back, as it seems to be doing, to the blandness and the inoffensiveness of the Tony Blair era, inoffensive that is to the power in the land and in the world, inoffensive to the rich and powerful. If it goes back to that, then hundreds of thousands of Labour Party members will be looking for a new home. We'll be talking about this in the course of the show. And of course, we'll be talking about World War III that nearly happened last week after our show. The murder, cold-blooded, terrorist, criminal murder of the Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, almost started World War III because, as I said here, uh, Iran 
had no alternative uh, but to respond to it. And if Donald Trump had responded to their response, then we would already be in the middle, if not of World War III, then of war throughout the world. And that war would have been unpredictable, violent, bloody, and potentially never-ending. After all, the Iraq war is still uh, rumbling uh, all these years after Mr. Bush and Mr. Blair shook hands on democracy in Iraq. What price democracy then in Iraq? Because the Iraqi parliament and prime minister have both told the US occupation force in the country that they must leave and that they must begin now uh, that withdrawal and the United States government have boldly declared that we are staying. In other words, uh, their occupation of a sovereign country with whom they're supposedly in a treaty alliance is worth nothing, not even the paper that it's written on. Well, I'm here to predict to you that the United States will be leaving Iraq. It will either leave by agreement, by negotiation, in good order and peacefully, or it will leave under fire amidst chaos and bloodshed. But one way or another, it's as sure as eggs is eggs, as sure as the United States left from the roof of their embassy in uh, what is now Ho Chi Minh City, which was Saigon uh, back in 1975, the United States will be leaving Iraq. And that's for the better. It's for the better for the people of the US. It's for the better for the people of the region, the people of the world. Because the tinderbox that is the Persian Gulf right now has not been tamped down uh, by the failure of Donald Trump to follow through on his promise that, and I'm quoting him, if any single American base is attacked by Iran in response to the Soleimani killing, then much of our $2 trillion worth of shiny weapons would be heading for Iran without hesitation. And we have earmarked, he said, 52 sites, including culturally important sites, sites of cultural importance to the people of Iran will be headed without hesitation for Iran. But Donald Trump stood down and he was right to do so. And we should say that, uh, that those who wished, like Pompeo, like Bolton and others, no doubt, who wished for a general war in the Gulf have been stymied by Trump's refusal to uh, allow it. And it turns out that what changed his mind was tuning in to Fox News and Tucker Carlson. Now, color me naive, I never imagined when I first became aware of Mr. Tucker Carlson that the world would come to sit in the palm of his hands. He stopped the attack last June that Donald Trump had already sent into the air in response to the shooting down of uh, a, an American drone, he stopped it uh, in a conversation with Donald Trump, who recalled the aircraft. And now President Trump says he is listening again to Tucker Carlson and Fox News, which has persuaded him 
to try a different approach. Now, the US Defense Secretary said this evening that they are ready for talks without precondition uh, with Iran. Well, I think that's the best news of 2020 so far, and I hope that they mean it. He kind of spoiled the pitch by saying that the only purpose of the talks was so that Iran could return to behaving like a normal country, a normal country like the US, I presume he had in mind. We'll be talking to distinguished expert guests on the American track and on the Middle East track in the course of the show. I didn't want to talk about the royals because they leave me entirely unmoved. I have absolutely uh, no enmity against the family itself, certainly not Her Majesty the Queen, whom I've met on a couple of occasions, long life to her and to her husband. But I consider the political, juris the juridical, the governmental system of monarchy to be really something out of a fairy tale, a ruritarian fantasy. The idea, even if the royal family were models of Olympian intellect and physicality, would be absurd in the 21st century. But when they are so clearly, deeply dysfunctional below the Queen, it must call into question the length of time that the British people are going to tolerate such a system of government. I was just looking the other day at the number of divorces in the royal family. I realized at that point that almost all of them are divorced. Many of them have never done a day's work of any kind in their life. And Meghan and Harry, who are trending now under all kinds of guises, are just the latest of those. Now, Harry did serve a bit in the armed forces. I doubt if he was put in harm's way, and that's probably wise that he was not. But when he had his fairy tale marriage to Meghan Markle, many hailed it as a breakthrough. She was a Roman Catholic, she was a divorcee, uh, and of course she was of mixed race, let's call her black, for the purposes of argument. Uh, millions of British people, including my wife and me, watched the fairy tale royal wedding. Many of us hoped that they would be a breath of fresh air down the stale corridors of Buckingham Palace and all the other uh, presidential palaces that the royal family inhabit. But that has turned out not to be. I don't know if it's about money. They're meeting, I think, tomorrow to discuss the financial implications of Meghan and Harry's decision to effectively leave the royal family and return to private life, but of course, hold on to the royal titles, the royal dwelling in the uh, grounds uh, of one of the Queen's palaces, just refurbished at the cost of two and a half million pounds to the British taxpayer. They're going to hold on to that, going to hold on to their titles, going to hold on to their Scotland Yard personal protection at our expense, but they're going to be touting themselves around Disneyland, literally. Prince Harry's just been captured on video actually asking the head of Disney for a job for his wife and she hadn't even left 
the, Europe, the, uh, the royal family's uh, enclave at that point. Now, this could become embarrassing if the Sussexes set themselves up as the new opera Winfrey, as the new Jay Leno, if they set themselves up as merely a celebrity circus show, that could get very embarrassing indeed. I think it all calls into question whether or not it's time. As one of the Labour hopefuls, Clive Lewis, to his credit, has said, time for a referendum in Britain. That after the passing of the Queen, long life to her, that we hold a grown-up debate followed by a referendum of the British people on whether we should become a republic. We've actually got a, 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 a poll up here. It says, uh, who is to blame for the crisis in Iran? A, Iran, B, Trump, C, the United Nations. And you can vote now on my Twitter feed later. We'll have a royal uh, poll. Now, don't forget this. You can delve into the growing catalog of programs of the mother of all talk shows and listen back whenever you like. You can download the Moats podcast. Just click onto your favorite podcast app and search hashtag Moats. Rachel Blevins, who is a journalist of note and a rising star. And I was keen to hear her perspective on how all of this is impacting on the US electoral scene. Rachel, a very warm welcome to you. I'm one of your biggest fans, as you know. Um, start by telling us, would you, how the Gulf crisis has played for Donald Trump? Well, thank you so much first for having me on your show and taking the time to talk about this subject. And I think whenever it comes to this ongoing crisis, it could go one of two ways for Donald Trump. You know, there's some places where this could bring up a lot more criticism for him when it comes to all of those Democratic candidates that are trying to run against him. And I think it will. You know, we've seen Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren really calling Trump out on this and asking why he moved forward with assassinating General Saul. Soleimani and why he's making all of these claims that Soleimani was planning this imminent attack on the United States and why that was so imminent and yet the Trump administration doesn't seem to have the reasons to back that up. At the same time, you know, when you look at back at 2016, Trump didn't really have a record at the time, right? So he could get up there and he could talk and he could criticize the United States government for all of these endless wars and he could say that he was going to come in and end them. But now that we've had four years of him in office, we've really seen that that just hasn't happened yet. I mean, we've seen some shuffling of the troops in the Middle East, but largely we're still at war in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. In all of these countries, there is still a troop presence there. And now there's still the possibility that Trump could get into it with, with Iran. I mean, this is something that, you know, Trump can say that he's ready for talks today, and then he could say that he's bombing the country tomorrow. There are still a lot of ups and downs there. And so that is something that I think that his Democratic opponents could really capitalize on. But then you also have to ask the question if they're going to actually do something different when they're in the driver's seat. And when it comes to a lot of them, it really raises the question if they're actually going to move forward with that and do something different. Especially as this crisis is very far from over. Uh, the attention will switch. Now, I don't think that Iran as a state 
will take any further actions of retaliation. Uh, but I expect that people who support Iran and people who will be described as being supported by Iran are definitely going to take actions. Indeed, this very day, uh, several U.S. soldiers, I think, have been wounded. Soldiers, anyway. They may have been Iraqi. They may have been American. But there were uh, several mortars fired at the, uh, the camp where a lot of soldiers were barracked. Uh, this is going to grow and grow because the Iraqi resistance is determined to force the U.S. to leave. The Syrian resistance equally determined that the U.S. must leave. Uh, the Lebanese resistance, Hezbollah and so on, uh, they are involved in uh, all of this. So uh, there will be irregular, asymmetrical clashes uh, going on all the time. And of course, if Trump decides to respond to them as if they were attacks by Iran, well, we're right back where we started, aren't we? Absolutely. I think that's a really great point there, especially when you're looking at the Middle East right now, because there are American voters here who don't even realize that we are still at war in Iraq and Afghanistan and these countries where war has been going on so long that the media just doesn't really talk about it anymore unless there's a certain imminent attack or there's something going on there. And they're just not aware of it. And when you look specifically at the assassination of Soleimani and you have Trump coming out and saying, oh, well, he was a really bad guy. We were going after him. A lot of Americans American voters just take that and they say, okay, well, he said he was bad, and so we're just going to go right along with that. But they're not looking at the fact that not only is the United States still in the Middle East, but the countries there don't want us there, right? This is a war that the United States pledged that they were going to bring freedom and democracy and they were going to be liberators, and instead it's turned into this ongoing occupation that we've seen for several years now. And all of that democracy that we brought to Iraq is now turning right back around and saying, okay, we're ready to be done with the United States and we're ready for this occupation to end. And that's something that, you know, President Trump can get up there and he can talk about it and he can say that he's ready to end the endless war. But to actually move forward with completely pulling troops out of that country, that's something that a lot of his top officials like Mike Pompeo are simply not going to stand for. And so I think you're absolutely right when you say that this is a situation that there could be some other kind of attack tomorrow that could be a smaller militia. And when the United States government has the power to be able to look at that and to say, oh, well, it's just this militia, but now we're going to claim that this was Iran directly, you know, wanting this attack to be carried out. And that's something that the media here in the United States, you know, CNN, Fox News, they then take those statements from those top U.S. officials and they broadcast them out to the country. And that's something that a lot of Americans simply don't question. And they don't look at this and say, okay, what's really going on in Iraq? Why is this really happening? Why are residents there so frustrated and so mad that they would want to protest against the U.S. embassy and against U.S. troops there? Now let's uh, move on, Rachel, to how this is impacting on the Democrats. I see that one consequence is to put back onto the table, into the frame, that Joe Biden uh, was a strong and virtually uncritical supporter of George W. Bush's war on Iraq. Uh, it's surely in the interests of Bernie Sanders all that's happened in the last few weeks. Is it an accident that Bernie has begun to move ahead in the polls in these crucial first caucus uh, and primary uh, states? Uh, is his genuine, long-held uh, anti-war position 
are going to stand him in good stead and vice versa in the case of Biden. Absolutely. I don't think it's any accident that Bernie Sanders has moved forward in the polls, especially in the last few weeks, because you look at someone who ha actually has a track record and he has been consistently anti-war, especially when it comes to the Middle East. You know, he can say that he didn't vote for the Iraq war. He didn't support, you know, going into war in Afghanistan and all of these things that Joe Biden simply can't say. And so I think that is something that a lot of voters, when they look at Bernie Sanders specifically, they may not even agree with him on his economic policies, but when it comes comes to his foreign policy. And when you've got someone standing up and saying, hey, I didn't want to get into these wars and I don't want to continue these wars, that's something that resonates with a lot of American voters. And now when you look at Joe Biden, he has been able to criticize Trump for, you know, pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. And he's been able to say, well, this is something that the Obama administration would not have stood for. However, Biden's track record doesn't really back up that he would actually pull out of the Middle East or that he would really do anything different than Trump is doing right now. Because in large part, Trump has really gone along with that status quo in the Middle East that we've seen under Bush and under Obama. And because Biden has made his whole entire pledge for presidency about continuing the Obama legacy, it doesn't look like he's really going to bring anything new to the table. And that's something that voters really have to consider because we're not seeing a lot of different stances on it when you look at Elizabeth Warren or a lot of the other contenders. We do have Tulsi Gabbard who has been incredibly anti-war because she's a veteran and she stood up against it but she's just not gaining the, that traction in the polls or that traction when it comes to those mainstream media networks that are the ones really broadcasting these polls, broadcasting these contenders, and bringing them to the American public's attention. So I think that's something that is absolutely working in Bernie Sanders' favor. Now the ultimate question is going to be, is the DNC actually going to let Bernie Sanders be their nominee this time around? Well, he has to win on the first ballot or he won't win. Isn't that right? Because the superdelegates, uh, which is uh, their idea of democracy, are giving some people extra votes, but only on a second ballot now. So Bernie has to win right up front, doesn't he? If it goes to a second ballot, the superdelegates will surely swing in against him. Right, exactly. And so he could run into some of those problems that he ran into in 2016, especially with the DNC and the fact that we haven't really seen a lot of major changes in the DNC since 2016, especially when you're looking at how they're going to handle the race this time around. Because in 2016, they essentially handed it over to Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders went along with that on his part, and he handed the nomination to her and didn't really fight it. And now he's coming back around this time. So there is some hope that maybe they'll actually listen to the people if they really want to be Donald Trump. I think that's what it's going to come down to at the end of the day is what do they want the DNC to look like and do they really want to put up a contender that's going to give Trump a run for his money? With all uh, due respect to Bernie Sanders, he's not a young man. And so some importance will be attached to who he picks as his vice presidential running mate. Have you got any speculation on that, Rachel? Absolutely. I agree that there's a lot of importance there. And I could see him going with Tulsi Gabbard as his running mate. I mean, like I said, she's been one of those anti-war voices. She stood by Bernie Sanders in a lot of respects. 
But I do agree that there's going to be a lot of importance placed on who he would choose to put in that role and how much he would listen to them moving forward, especially when you're looking at them going up against President Trump and a Mike Pence, who is a lot more radical and right wing than even Trump claims to be. So I agree that it's going to come down to those vice presidential contenders to really make this to really make this race interest, interesting. Finally, and I'm grateful for your time. What does all this mean for the impeachment? Has the postman arrived at the Senate building yet? Uh, the articles of impeachment, the last time I looked, hadn't even been given uh, to the Senate so that they could begin uh, what might uh, be described loosely as a trial uh, of, uh, of Donald Trump. Is that just all been a game, Rachel, or are they serious? In which case, when does it start? Right. That's what everyone's waiting for is to find out, okay, when is this trial going to start? When are we going to move forward with this? Because we had 24-7 coverage of impeachment for so long, and now it's just kind of all gone away. So I think everybody's kind of waiting on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to see what she's going to do and how she's going to play this. Now, I think it's important to remember that when you're looking at Donald Trump, one of the reasons why he was elected in the first place was because he was able to present himself as sort of an anti-establishment candidate, which ironically is exactly what Barack Obama was able to do just in a completely different way, right? Everyone wants to vote for someone who gets them excited, who speaks out against the establishment, who speaks out against the current president, and that's something they were both able to do. Now, with Trump specifically, he ran as anti-establishment, he got in office, he's been pretty much right along the establishment with his actual policy choices in a lot of areas. But impeachment was something that was almost able to save him because it put him right back into that anti-establishment category, right? Because not only is he saying that he's going to do all of these things, but now Congress doesn't even want him in office. And so all of these Americans that are frustrated with Congress and that don't agree with them now look at this and say, oh, well, if they're wanting to impeach this president, then maybe I should go vote for him. So I think in a lot of ways, impeachment might have actually helped him in the long run. However, it's going to depend specifically on what he does when it comes to foreign policy over the next few months, especially as we see him, you know, going forward with sending more troops to the Middle East. We've got, you know, American soldiers that are finding out that they're going to be shipped overseas within the next day, within the next week. And that's something that trickles back down. So I think the next few months are going to be absolutely crucial where that's concerned. And we'll see if we get a trial within the next few months. Uh, my prediction is if it's Sanders versus Trump, Sanders wins. If it's Biden or Warren against Trump, Trump wins. Am I way off beam there, Rachel? I think you're right on the money where that's concerned. And I think we're also going to have to wait to see if there's actually going to be a third party candidate to give these top two a run for their money. Because I know a lot of people talk all the time about it's just Democrat versus Republican. And the majority of Americans don't identify as Democrat or Republican. So we'll see who the Libertarian Party and who the Green Party puts up for their candidates. And maybe that will create an entirely new conversation, especially if the Democrats decide to go with a Warren or a Biden pick that just really aren't exciting Americans or getting them ready to get out there and vote. I told them you were a star. Rachel, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Who's to blame for the crisis in Iran? A, Iran, 31%. B, Trump, 61%. C, the United Nations, 8%. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Two and a half thousand people have voted so far. Now, uh, I think it's probably wise if I show you my short that I did 
for RT on the Iran subject, which was so big, it dwarfed all other shorts that I have done. We now have an audience of roughly 10 million for the 20 or so shorts for RT that I have done. This one was uh, on the uh, eve of the Iranian retaliation and Donald Trump standing down. But nonetheless, I think it's worth taking a quick look at. Let's see. The biggest funeral in all human history has just taken place in Iran. Millions of people have accompanied the cardboard coffin of General Qasem Soleimani to his final resting place, laying to rest the first of the many lies in this picture, that the Iranian people would be secretly glad at the slaying of their war hero, maybe even, as Pompeo suggested, dancing in the streets. In fact, the killing of Soleimani has brought the Iranian people together, not just in Iran, but around the world in a way that no other action has ever done. The Iraqi parliament's decision to expel foreign forces from their land is also extremely significant. The Prime Minister's revelation that Soleimani was in Iraq on a peace mission to respond to a Saudi-Iraqi initiative to de-escalate the situation is also extremely portentous, making abundantly clear that this act was not only unhinged, but was illegal and was premeditated murder. A murder so foul that even George W. Bush refused to countenance it when the option was presented to him, as did President Barack Obama. The millions on the streets of Iran also show that the Iranian government now has literally no alternative but to retaliate to this crime. For them, it would be not only a matter of dishonor, a breach of faith to the slain general's family, uh, but also politically far too risky to allow this murder to go unavenged. And of course, when it is avenged, as I'm perfectly sure that it will be, Donald Trump has already made clear that of the $2 trillion worth of military hardware purchased by the U.S. military, much of it will be heading without hesitation to Iran, including two cultural sites, a war crime under international law. What could possibly go wrong? And once Donald Trump has landed the massive retaliation to the retaliation to the retaliation to the retaliation, the Iranians will have to act again. And before we know it, we'll be in the teeth of a gigantic war against a country of 80 million people, half of them young people, entirely united behind their government and its armed forces, and a country with powerful friends around the world. Not just the obvious friends in Syria and in Lebanon and in Palestine, but big friends, big powerful friends like Russia and China, who will be under themselves a great deal of pressure for their own international prestige not to stand idly by while one of their closest friends and allies is pulverized by Donald J. Trump 
It may very well be that at that stage the American cabinet would have to step in and trigger the powers they have under the US Constitution to declare President Trump as being of unsound mind and not safe to be left with the nuclear trigger on his desk. The international situation has seldom been more dangerous. Iran is perfectly capable of causing absolute chaos in the region. The mere act of making the Straits of Hormuz impassable to oil traffic through the Gulf would rocket the price of oil to a point of simple unaffordability. You might not be able to get a barrel of oil at less than hundreds of dollars a barrel. This would cause economic chaos throughout the world, particularly in Europe. And that's why Merkel and Macron have denounced this action in the strongest possible terms. So much so that uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, has publicly lamented the lack of support from America's traditional allies in Europe. Even Boris Johnson maintained a diplomatic silence for two whole days on his sun lounger in Mustique in the Caribbean. And when he did speak, it was scarcely a fulsome act of support for Donald Trump, although he uttered words, as he always does, so careless, so clumsy, that they have again placed in jeopardy the fate of the British prisoner in Iran, and who may well now face condign consequences. This act is so unhinged as to be off the scale. One can only presume that Donald J. Trump simply couldn't grasp the consequences of his action. It may well now be dawning in Washington that this was the mother of all mistakes, worse than a crime, a blunder of unprecedented proportions. As a week is a long time in politics, it's also a long time in broadcasting, and a great deal has happened since I recorded that video and it started going out and being watched in the millions of times. Uh, the first and most obvious is that Iran demonstrated the seriousness of its ballistic missile capability. Not only did it land a significant number of ballistic missiles on American uh, military bases, it did so without killing anyone. It did so by informing people whom it knew would inform the United States commanders on the ground so that they could withdraw their soldiers to safety. And thus, the ballistic missile capability was used to destroy tarmac and hangars rather than human beings. And we must all be grateful for that. It still means that Trump didn't follow through on his promise that if any US base was attacked, he would without hesitation attack 52 sites in Iran. But it never got to that. Now, of course, it also does not take into account the ghastly blunder of shooting down the Ukrainian air jet that had just taken off from Tehran, carrying Iranians, Iranian Canadians, Iranian Iranians, and others from a small number of other countries, including three from this country. Uh, this disaster, for that is what it is, is a consequence of the state of war 
uh, which exists and existed that night over Tehran. After all, Donald Trump had promised to hit 52 sites if Iran attacked an American base. And Iran did attack an American base. And therefore, it's perfectly obvious uh, that the expectation on the part of the gunners firing the anti-aircraft missiles from uh, Tehran could imagine that a civilian airliner was, in fact, an American bomber headed its way. It was not, of course. And therefore, all these innocent civilian travelers were shot out of the sky. Their lives ended in the most horrific way imaginable. The Iranian government has acted swiftly in accepting responsibility for this ghastly military blunder and has promised to hold to account uh, the military personnel responsible for it. This compares and contrasts, of course, uh, with the actions of President Reagan when his Navy shot an Iranian airliner with nearly twice as many innocent civilian passengers on board out of the sky in the 1980s. 66 of those killed were children. Now, the captain of the Vincennes, the American military ship that brought down the Iranian airliner, was not held to account. He was not put on trial. There wasn't even an apology from the United States. In fact, the president gave the captain of the ship William C. Rogers III of the USS Vincennes a medal. He was awarded the Legion of Merit for mistakenly, one must assume, confusing an Iranian civilian airliner over Iranian territorial waters with a warplane that was a justifiable target, killing hundreds of people on board. Both of these are absolute disasters. Both of them are absolute tragedies. The responsibility for this blunder lies with the Iranian military command, of course, but it must also be shared with Donald Trump. If Donald Trump had not assassinated General Soleimani, if Donald Trump had not threatened to attack 52 sites, including sacred cultural sites, if any response or retaliation came from Iran, created a state of war in the skies above Tehran Airport, where that doomed flight had taken off from. The second thing that has happened since I recorded that video is that the British ambassador, ambassador. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Was grabbed by the Iranian police at a demonstration calling for the downfall of the government to which the British ambassador is accredited. What madness is this? What about our own interests, including the safety of Nazanin Ratcliffe, the British citizen being unjustly held by Iran in an Iranian dungeon? The British ambassador is on a demonstration demanding the downfall of the Iranian government. What madness is this? Now, he was briefly detained, the news said. Turns out it was actually even less than that. He was summoned to the foreign ministry to explain why he, as an accredited diplomat, as an ambassador of a great power, was on a demonstration with such dramatic demands as the downfall of the Islamic Republic. Now, some fools confuse form with content. They see a demonstration somewhere, they want to throw flowers at it because they're used to being on demonstrations themselves in their own country. This is not a demonstration of the true feelings of the people of Iran, this is a demonstration of the true feelings of a small group of mainly English-speaking, middle-class, educated people in Tehran. Their views are absolutely valid, of course, and we have to see and listen to them. But any fool who imagines that they are speaking for the 80 millions of people, most of whom don't speak English, or live in Tehran, are not university educated, and have never met a British or American newsman. Anyone who confuses the thousands with the millions, confuses the first month of pregnancy with the ninth, is not doing anybody any favors. Especially as it is now abundantly clear that these demonstrations are organized by the deep state of the United States of America and its close allies. That much is clear even before you know that the British ambassador was on it. The pictures that they themselves are taking show a Hong Kong flash mob style of demonstration which is straight out of the Maidan playbook the playbook which brought down the government in the Ukraine, the playbook which is attempting 
to bring down Chinese rule in Hong Kong. These are color revolutions of which we've seen many. But this one, of course, will not, cannot succeed. It doesn't mean that the Iranian regime should shoot them. God forbid that they shoot them. But neither does it require the Iranian government to collapse or surrender in front of them. They are a few thousand students in central Tehran. And if our ambassador doesn't know that, then he doesn't know enough about foreign affairs and about Iran to deserve to be holding the title of Her Majesty's ambassador uh, to the Islamic Republic. Lots of paperwork here. George, it seems to me that the press in this country are more concerned with Prince Harry marrying a black woman than the fact that his uncle is in hiding for reasons of his own. How far we've come, says Tez. This, of course, a reference to Prince Andrew. We'll be talking in the final hour about him. Prince Andrew stands accused of actual crimes. Harry marrying Meghan Markle was definitely no crime. It may have been a blunder. It may have been a mistake. It may have been that she was never cut out for the numb, mindless existence of being a member of Britain's royal family. John says Trump has always been a fuse waiting to be lit and with his own narcissistic vision of the world outside the US. He thinks he can do things with impunity. Now he has been impeached and his ego dented. He's getting more toxic and dangerous by the day. Thanks, John. And uh, Ahura Mazda says your answer choice in the poll should say the Islamic Republic, not hashtag Iran. We Iranians don't consider the regime Iranian. They're considered occupiers, or as we call them, hashtag Shia ISIS. Get your facts straight. Are you still on the mullah payroll? Why don't you give us a call? Our number is 02077-982-255. Or if you're in the US, which you quite possibly are, or in Albania maybe, on 001757-744-4480. Because I'd like to discuss this with you. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Or are you just another gutless coward hiding behind anonymity on the internet? I am not now, nor have I ever been, on the mullah's payroll. The Iranian government and the millions, millions of Iranian citizens that were at the funeral marches for Soleimani are Iranians. The armed forces of Iran are Iranians. The leaders of Iran are Iranians. You, on the other hand, are probably living in a US-sponsored camp in Albania as a member of an organization which is proscribed around the world as a terrorist organization. The MEK, so-called, has murdered people, has self-immolated 
has immolated others, has been involved in dozens, maybe hundreds of terrorist crimes. That's who you are. It's you who is not the Iranian. It's you who most likely is a foreign agent, an American agent. You could, of course, call me and lay all of my accusations to rest. Couldn't you? Will you? I doubt it. Ambassador Ba says the useless UN is at fault here. It must be blamed for keeping quiet and not condemning White House behavior. You see, I'm with you on that, Ambassador. The United Nations has tolerated a situation where the foreign minister of Iran has been denied entry to the United States to attend the United Nations to give Iran's side of the story at the United Nations Security Council. What madness is that? What is the point of a UN if the United States government can decide who is allowed to turn up and talk about great international events that are pregnant with many dangers to the safety and security of the world? I think the United Nations has plumbed new depths of pusillanimity, new depths of uselessness in this Gulf crisis. Cisco Phil says, please tell me how Trump is to blame for the Iranian crisis, please. Uh, okay, in the time left available to me, he ripped up the Iran nuclear deal, ripped it up in plain sight when every other party to the deal attested that it was working perfectly and that Iran had observed its terms in a pristine and perfect way. That's what started the Iran crisis. And it was your hero, the big orange palooka, which started it all by ripping it up. And then, of course, by imposing sanctions that are killing Iranian children and old people and sick people in their beds, in their homes, with increasing regularity. Sanctions upon sanctions upon sanctions upon sanctions, which are deliberately intended to starve the Iranian people into rising up against their government. A script which the United States has followed everywhere around the world for the best part of a century now. If you don't know that, Cisco Phil, then you are sincerely stupid. And then, because in a terrorist attack, in an act of cold-blooded, premeditated murder, he killed the second man in the state who was traveling on a diplomatic passport, on a diplomatic mission, and was in a third country with which the United States has treaty and fraternal relations. How's that for abusing Iraq's national Sovereignty. So, Cisco, I um, extend the same invitation to you. If you're in the US, 001-757-744-4480, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. And Phoenix says, I don't blame Trump for Iran. The poor guy didn't even know 
who Soleimani was. I think he was pressed to do so, having no idea, as usual, what he was doing. God save us, Phoenix, if that's true. Is the President of the United States, Chance the Gardener, Chauncey Gardner, is he Peter Sellers dressed up as a man so dumb that he can plunge the world into war on the say-so of AIDS when he has not the faintest idea who or what they are talking about? It's a chilling thought. Now, I'm joined by someone who really does know uh, about the Middle East. Dr. Marwa Osman is a journalist and academic. There's uh, almost no end to the list of publications and television stations uh, on which she has worked. She's based in Beirut, in the Lebanon, hitherto mentioned by Kevin in Woodbridge, and I'm glad to say she joins us now. Uh, Dr. Marwa, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mr. Galloway. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Uh, doctor, tell us first, what, how do you calibrate the scale of the opposition protests going on right now in Tehran and one or two other places in Iran? Is it big? Is it small? Is it existential? Uh, is the government afraid? Uh, that it might fall? You know, what existential is, is what we saw four days ago in the funeral of uh, Qasem Soleimani, or Lieutenant General Qasem Soleimani, when we had seven million people go to the streets of Tehran to mourn their commander, when we had 1.3 million people in Ahvaz, which is actually populated of one million, which means people coming from extremities of Ahbaz came to uh, get included in this morning procession for Qasem Soleimani. What we saw in Karman, we saw in Karman more than two million people come down to also both mourn and celebrate their commander because he meant so much for them. That is an existential uh, flock of people in the streets all, of, all across uh, Iran. What we saw in the videos, in the amateur videos that were taken uh, for, for two days now uh, from supposedly uh, Iranian uh, cities. We don't exactly know where uh, they, they initiated, but one of them, which we saw the, U the UK ambassador take part in, was uh, from students in one of Tehran's universities where they were very saddened by the tragedy of the Ukrainian plane and they wanted to express themselves now. Not, don't let me get started with how they were expressing themselves because because we would get into somewhere we're not talking right now because there was a lot of preparedness planned, uh, if you will, uh, actions against the government. But looking at the videos, it was the numbers was no more than 200. And that's exactly what Iranian uh, news media, diverse Iranian news media was reporting about. That it was a couple of hundred uh, people in the streets who were very angry about the downing, which they should be. Uh, the uh, the um, uh, wrongful downing uh, of uh, the plane, which was uh, uh, basically said by all uh, high members and high-ranking commanders and officials in Iran where they apologized and they admitted it. And now uh, we are hearing reports that uh, Ali Shamakhani, who is the uh, uh, head or the commander of the Supreme National 
Security Council in Iran that he's getting ready to uh, step down from his position as a result of this uh, tragedy. Now, it's legitimate for people to be angry and it's legitimate for people to voice their uh, their anger. But why is it a concern for Donald Trump that urges him to tweet in Persian uh -huh. to talk about a couple of hundred people who were escorted by who a knew? UK who diplomat? Who knew he could, uh, he could tweet in Farsi? He can't even tweet in proper English. And, and that's the that's the the funny part where his Farsi was actually better grammar than his, than his English. That tells a lot about his staff here. But when you when you see this uh, surprising, uh, if you will, attention and uh, elaborate attention as well to how he's standing with them, how they are fighting against their government, and just it's just five days after he ordered the assassination of the second highest ranking member of the Iranian government. Basically, when he's just a diplomat, as you just said, delivering a message or there to deliver the response for the message coming from Iraq and Saudi Arabia, just days after killing their commander and just hours after saying that he wants to increase the sanctions, the economic sanctions that are suffocating the ordinary Iranian public, that he wants to stand by them and take their hand into liberty, freedom and whatever he's saying, whatever nonsense he's saying. When you look at that, what kind of an existential threat are you talking about when you tell me 200 angry people go down to the streets? If I want have a party right now in my own house, I would have 200 people right here in Beirut protesting that I am actually uh, bringing some sort of uh, discomfort for the neighborhood. That's how, how it's being viewed by Iran itself. And if people don't believe me, just wait on it. Wait till the 40th day to, commemor to commemorate the 40th day of the martyrdom of Lieutenant General Qasem Soleimani and see the millions of people flocking, flocking the streets again of Tehran, Ahvaz, Kerman, you name it, any city in Tehran. People don't understand the vast impact of this assassination on a society like that inside of Iran, where we have different ethnic, cultural, religious groups living under one nation. They don't understand how important this person was for them as an image for them as as a protector as well people forget that ahvaz had uh, attempted uh, uh, explosion explosions terrorist attacks against ahvaz terrorist attacks against other places and other cities in iran that were initiated launched by isis and the likes of isis they don't understand that the threat was imminent they always ask what is an iranian general doing in iraq syria or lebanon they don't understand the fact that this region has the right to have allies. They understand the fact how NATO operates, they understand how a US-led coalition operates, but they don't want to understand how a region could stand together, have allies, and fight against ISIS, which is bred by the US and the people who are the US are allied with in this region. They cannot understand the fact that we can actually be friends and fight together against an existential threat on our lives but they can actually normally call what the U.S. is doing liberal freedom and democracy. Well, I was uh, of course, to your guest, uh, General, Soleimani comes, General Soleimani comes from yeah. a lot closer to Iraq uh, than, uh, than uh, the American generals and, uh, and other uh, factotums that have been uh, trying to run things in Iraq uh, for the best part now uh, of 20 years. Um, now, the, uh, all but the sheep know uh, that the, when, when a president of the United States begins talking directly to a foreign people in their own language,
and describing how uh, he stands by them, uh, then there's already a regime change operation organized by the United States underway. And that was evident to me in the videos the protesters themselves shot. This is straight out of the playbook of Hong Kong, uh, of Hong the Kong. Maidan in the Ukraine. This is a, another American attempt at regime change. Question is, will it succeed or will it fail, doctor? Definitely it will fail, especially if it had any margin of success before the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani, it definitely went down the drain after the assassination. Trump had actually a golden ticket in his hands and he didn't know how to use it. What he did was go against what his consultants and his own uh, Secretary of Defense said. Mike Esper just a, a, a while ago, we were reading like three hours ago, there was an article that says that Esper says that he had no evidence that would implicate General Soleimani in any uh, attempt to target any U.S. Uh, uh, embassies, just like Donald Trump was saying. Even his se uh, uh, Secretary of Defense, even his staff was not sure why they were killing uh, this man. It was just that Benjamin Netanyahu wanted him dead. And there you go. He's dead. But no, it will not work out this way because it didn't work out this way in Iraq. It didn't work out this way in Syria. Why would they think for an effective second that it would work out in Iran? Look what happened in Iraq, for example. Protests, more than 500 people were killed. Now we are hearing about reports that those who were killed were actually assassinated by top-notch snipers. Who were these snipers? Who were they working with? Why were they trying to create civil war inside of Iraq after this country stood together to fight off ISIS and actually managed to do so with the help of Iran and other uh, state and non-state actors in the region as well? Why would that work in Iran when the Iranian government has Def definitely tried its best to benefit the people from whatever they can get out of this economic sanctions because it was suffocating everyone at the time when you have other protests going against governments for corruption, going uh, against um, corrupt politicians, against uh, a non-existence infrastructure. But if you actually go to Iran, you don't have any of this. It's an actually functioning government and a functioning society. They are just hurting their economy because of the sanctions. Lift those sanctions and watch how the Iranian people will live freely, obviously, but will live burden-free. That's the most important thing for them. They cannot buy their uh, medicine. They cannot, uh, they cannot find the medicine because of the sanctions. They cannot actually fix the planes. The plane was shot down uh, in a, in a, by mistake, but other planes would have fallen. Just last year, a plane was about to fall in the sky because they were not able to maintain it to do maintenance for the plane because of the sanctions. The Iranians were not allowed to do uh, those things. They were not allowed even to buy parts for the place because of the sanctions. What does that sanction, which is a 101 security for, for national security and for civilian security, have to do with whatever politics you have had-to-head uh, had with Iran? This is what the U.S. is doing. This is what the U.S. is hoping for. But look, it's not even working in Hong Kong. How will it work in the U.S.? Uh, I'm sorry, in Iran. It didn't even work in Iraq. How is it going to work in Iran? especially now when the situation is out in the open everyone knows how much Trump eagerly wants to see the Iranian government toppled which will not happen because it's not a dictatorship they don't even understand how the um, uh, regime or how the rule of law actually happens in Iran and why should I listen again to your to your guest he was saying that he does not accept the Sharia law or the 
laws that are put in place in Iran. Who is he to say that he accepts it or not? There's a society that accepts it. Why should he as a Westerner have an opinion about the law of another nation? Because we all know that laws are uh, dependent on how society functions, what are tradition and what are morale and uh, what are uh, values in a certain society and also up upon certain religious uh, factors as well. Why should a Westerner who lives in an absolutely different society, different community, different set of uh, cultural backgrounds and historic backgrounds have a say of how a country which is 6,000 miles away is functioning. I don't understand how this, why would I have a say in how the US is functioning itself? Why would I have to say anything about Trump's impeachment? It's not my problem. We just want them out of the region. We want them to take their beautiful guns and machines, how Donald Trump actually put them up and get out of our region. If they wanna come in, they can come in friendly and have diplomatic relations with us and not a colonial, a neo-colonial relationship or an imperial relationship. It's not gonna work out this way. What does actually Donald Trump want from Iran? Why has not no Western who actually abides by the rules of the mainstream media, by the blind rules of mainstream media, asked the question of what does Trump want from Iran? Well, I'll let tell you what, uh, doctor, let me uh, interrupt you just because of the hour. Uh, the defense secretary, in the statement you referred to just a few hours ago, uh, said that the U.S. was ready for talks with Iran without preconditions, uh, but that Iran had to start behaving like a normal country. Uh, what do you think they mean by that? And is this a silver lining? Uh, do the Americans really mean uh, talks without preconditions? In which case, let's have them, surely. Well, historically, there was no evidence that the, the, the U.S. has ever initiated talks without preconditions. We don't have any evidence of that. But what do they mean, behave like a normal nation? Do they want them like to behave them, like I the suppose. U.S. got <laughs> Yeah, like them, I suppose. God forbid, do they want Iran to turn into a neo-colonial imperial power that has military bases in countries where people initiate draft bills in their own parliament asking them to leave and then they would actually uh, uh, put their foot down and say, no, we're not leaving, despite the fact that this is your actual independent decision. Would they want uh, Iran to become a nation that bombs, that drops bombs? Uh, 25,000 bombs were dropped at the time of uh, Barack Obama. Would they want them to do the same thing? Would they like to see Iran bombing funerals and weddings because they suspect of a certain intelligence operation going on? Would they like to see Iran blockading the Gaza Strip, for example, like the Israeli entity does, or blockading Yemen, more more than 10,000 uh, uh, children uh, die per week in Yemen. It's actually more than 1,000 kids per day that's being buried by his parents in Yemen because of the blockade and the war. This is how they want Iran to behave. How would they want someone like Iran to open its arms for the U.S. when Iran is actually cornered by every side, by military, by U.S. military bases, and the entire region is blowing up in war upon war because of the U.S. malign presence in the region along its, along its biggest proxy, which is the Israeli entity. When you see fire in your neighbor's house, would you invite the fire over or you would take protective measures to make sure that the fire doesn't spread into your own house and then make sure to help your neighbor because if you don't stop that fire there, it will definitely come into your house. What are they thinking about and how are they able and how do they manage to make their people believe them? I have no idea.
Dr. Marwasman, uh, you're a terrific talker. Thanks for being our guest this evening on the mother of all talk shows. Thank you very much indeed. Let's take a quick break. Latest Royal Bruhaha, which has brewed up over the last few days since Prince Harry, the son of Prince Charles and the late Princess Diana, announced that him and his wife, uh, Meghan Markle, I don't know if she's a princess or a duchess or whatever, but she arrived on the scene straight from the set of Suits, uh, filmed in Toronto, and uh, immediately made quite a positive impact. It's one of the reasons why I'm skeptical about the implied, sometimes explicitly stated, uh, uh, allegation that the British people have somehow been guilty of racism towards her. I'm sure that there may have been uh, some, just as someone like me automatically assumed that because she was a Roman Catholic, she might have difficulties in the British royal family. I suppose uh, it's equally possible that race has played uh, a part in uh, her current travails, which have led her literally to leave the country on a £134 budget flight back to Canada, uh, to a home uh, which allegedly has been provided to the couple for their Christmas New Year holiday, which was an extended one, uh, by a Russian billionaire. Although the Daily Mail, which uh, alleged that, has not yet put up any evidence, any facts to support it. But clearly, they've been given a rather sumptuous uh, dwelling house uh, in British Columbia, a very beautiful part of North America, uh, which I have uh, many times had the honor to visit myself. And uh, they'll be right at home there in British Columbia because it's kind of like Britain in the 1950s uh, or 60s, albeit rather more multiracial. Anyway, enough from me. This royal brouhaha has been an absolute godsend to a former parliamentary colleague of mine, Norman Baker. Norman Baker was a Lib Dem MP of note, uh, and he was a minister indeed, under Theresa May when she was the Home Secretary. Since leaving Parliament, uh, he has uh, made his living as a singer, songwriter, and writer, and soon to be filmmaker. Uh, Norman Baker is a lad of many parts, and he's Scottish uh, to boot, so I've always liked him. He challenged the uh, conventional wisdom over the strange death of Dr. David Kelly, and he is an executive producer of my forthcoming film called Killing Kelly. He has written an amazing new book, which I've now read most of. Uh, it's called What the Royal Family Don't Want You to Know, dot, 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 and what you do. What do you do? Because that's their question. He talks about the small talk of the royal family, and their automatic first question is, and what do you do? When it was posed to me, uh, I told Her Majesty that this was the second time I had served her, the first time being as a wine waiter at the age of 18 in the Angus Hotel in Dundee when she posed me uh, my biggest then dilemma in life. I asked her, red or white, Your Majesty, and she answered, yes, please. Tell you, when you're 18 and the Queen gives you an answer like that, it's a bit disconcerting. Anyway, there's the book, there's the cover, and there on the balcony are all the many mouths that we have to feed. And that's my gripe 
with the Meghan and Harry business. If they were genuinely resigning from it all and going off to Disneyland to do voiceovers, uh, to become the opera, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Opera Winfrey de nos jours, uh, no one could complain about that. My problem is they seem to want to have it both ways, to have their cake and eat it. They seem to want to retain their royal titles, their royal property, and their publicly provided diplomatic, close, personal protection, all at our expense. Now, who do you support in this brouhaha? Poll number two is now live. A, Meghan and Harry. B, Her Majesty the Queen. C, abolish the monarchy. It's 18% support Meghan and Harry. 36%, twice as many, support Her Majesty the Queen. And C, 46% want to abolish the monarchy. Anyway, back to my mate Norman Baker. Because Prince Andrew and Prince Harry are clearly on his sales team. Because this book is flying off the shelves. No book could ever have been better timed. Timing is everything. Norman Baker, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. <laughs> Thank you very much, George, for that introduction. Now, uh, I mean, it is an accident. You didn't know uh, that all these gigantic royal stories uh, would emerge just in time to sell your book like hotcakes, uh, or did you? I didn't know, but I did know there's a lot wrong with the royal family, uh, which needs to be exposed, particularly their uh, financial arrangements and the preferential treatment they receive from legislation. And the fact that because they are largely exempt, almost totally exempt from freedom of information, they behave in ways which are indefensible. And I'm afraid that this is human nature. If you give somebody the power to do something wrong with the guarantee they won't be found out, then people behave badly. We saw that with the MPs' expenses, which I also helped to reveal. And uh, this is the case with the royal family. Prince Andrew in particular has been behaving in all sorts of ways, not just the, uh, the uh, calamity, uh, over in America with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, but also in terms of his financial dealings with um, unpleasant people in the in around the world, dictators and so on. So this is all now coming out. It's in my book. And uh, I think it's time for the royal family to take a very hard look at itself. And uh, it's going to have to reform because uh, the tree that doesn't bend is going to break. I'm glad you mentioned Prince Andrew because we've been on this Epstein story right from the beginning here on this uh, show. And uh, you are... Uh, extremely critical uh, of Andrew. Uh, so let me, uh, as it were, as devil's advocate, uh, try to provide some uh, defense for him. Uh, he says he has never met that young woman that he's photographed with his arm around. Uh, he says that he was in Pizza Express in Dorking uh, on the material uh, day, Woking, I beg your pardon, uh, on the material day, I've just boosted uh, Pizza Express in Dorking, if there is one. Uh, he says uh, that, uh, that he has been guilty of no impropriety uh, with Jeffrey Epstein's young women, girls, uh, at all. Um, there's no real evidence yet that, he, that that's wrong, is there? Well, look, I mean, he is, as you say, photographed with his arm round uh, Victoria, and uh, it's difficult to have your arm around somebody and, and pretend you haven't met them. And anyone who suggests it's a fake photograph, I think, is is pretty no, desperate. No, it, it's not fake, no. But but you and uh, I both know that all kinds of people come up for selfies uh, with you more than me, 
Uh, and uh, we don't actually know them, but we are in a picture with them. Well, it's not just that, George, is it? Because he was also photographed with his poking his head out of the door uh, on Epstein's property in New York, oh, his yeah. apartment in New oh, York. Clearly, and he was there for he several was days. a bosom buddy of Epstein. Uh, and and you know, he, she said he went, this was after Epstein had been convicted um, of uh, what he was convicted of in terms of, in terms of um, child prostitution and so on. He was, he was uh, visiting Epstein at that point. And he said in his defense that he went there to break off his friendship with him. Well, you know, you don't go halfway around the world to break off friendship. You don't stay three or four days with someone at their apartment to do that. So the explanations he's afforded uh, in public have been ludicrous. And that's why it's well regarded by everybody that the uh, television interview on the BBC was a classic own goal. Uh, he destroyed himself in that hour. Yeah, and uh, he's now just sacked the uh, uh, hapless palace official that helped persuade him into doing it. Uh, you mean Amanda Thursk? Yeah. But well, the, she's still going to be handling uh, Pitchett Palace or whatever it's called these days. She's yeah, still there. I don't predict a great financial future for that. I mean, he's been destroyed, hasn't he? He has been destroyed, but, I mean, he's clearly, clearly going to carry on doing what he can, and he is a property. He's got HRH in front of his name. This is also an issue for Harry and Meghan in due course, and that will carry some weight around the world. And, you know, he has been able to associate with some very dubious characters um, who then have um, uh, been very friendly to him. And he's ended up with a huge amount of money from sources we're not entirely clear about. Just just take his property at uh, Sunning Hill Park, the, the house which um, he got from the Queen after he was married to Fergie. Uh, that was a pretty ghastly property, in my view. It was yeah. sort of thing like one Charles of these... Out of town uh, Tesco's or something. Well, it, absolutely, except it didn't have a toy train clock on the top. Otherwise, it was like a Tesco's. It certainly wouldn't have passed Prince Charles's architectural judgment. Um, and that was um, then uh, no use to him after he and Fergie split up. It was put on the market for £12 million. It sat there for years, no one buying it. He then hawked it around the Middle East when he was over there as our trade envoy, trying to flog this place as part of his activities abroad. So was he serving himself or was he serving this country, and then lo and behold, it was sold for 15 million pounds, three million above the asking price, by uh, the relation to um, the, the dictator in Kazakhstan. Well, you know, what did he do with it? He left it to rot and then demolished it. Now, isn't that a rather curious set of circumstances? It is. Uh, I, I'm not going to defend that in any way. Let's talk for a minute about, uh, about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Let me ask you straight up. Uh, was it because she was a Catholic that some people didn't like her? Or was it because she was black? Or well, because think, she was a divorcee? Or all three? No, I don't think... I think it's a fourth thing, George, actually. I mean, no doubt the fact that she was American uh, it was a contributory factor. And uh, the previous history of Americans in the royal family, namely Wallace Simpson, isn't a terribly good um, uh, example to follow. Um, it, it may be there's an element of racism, um, but I think most of it was the fact that she was an intelligent, or is an intelligent woman, prepared to stand up and speak her mind. I didn't want to be constrained within the narrow railway lines of the of the royal family. She didn't want to be told, you must behave like a Miss World contestant from 1956. Uh, you must do what you were told. You must simper at your husband's side and say nothing else. You must wear these ghastly colours, and this is a nail varnish you can use. She didn't want to do all that, and I don't blame her. So she was an independent woman like, uh, like Princess Diana was, and that's, I think, the, the reason why she was uh, not wanted uh, in the royal family. She was too independent-minded. Whereas Kate, for example, has by and large uh, done what she's told. Well, uh, that's all very well, but why then hold on to the title? 
Well, no, I agree with that. I mean, um, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, your introduction was what I've said in my columns in The Sun and elsewhere that I've written recently. You know, you're either in the royal family or you're not. You're either there on the balcony uh, watching the planes fly by, opening the old hospital here and there, uh, turning up for charity events, uh, shaking hands and taking bouquets of flowers from children. That's what you do. Or alternatively, you're out of the royal family and you go and become, as you said, I think, at the beginning, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Oprah Winfrey, and good luck to them if you do. What you cannot do is be one or the other. You can't go around uh, like a footballer with um, a, a brand name on your shirt like David Beckham does. Good luck to him. Uh, and then at the next minute, pretend you're non-political and you've got no outside interests and behave as a member of the royal family. You know, you're either marketing yourself and selling your name for purposes uh, which are going to enrich you, or you remember the royal family. You can't do both. Prince Andrew's tried it, um, and he's becoming unstuck from it. And Harry will come unstuck if he tries to do the same thing. Why don't we take this opportunity, or the opportunity after a long life, one hopes, of Her Majesty when she passes, why don't we take that opportunity to have a grown-up discussion about whether we want to continue to punish these poor Windsors, or as you point out brilliantly in your book, uh, Sachs, Coburg, Botha, uh, Gotha, uh, why, why don't we take the opportunity to set these people free and set us free from what is a throwback to earlier centuries? Well, you know, if Prince Harry and Meghan want to set themselves free, no one's stopping them. If, um, if Prince and Princess Andrew's, uh, Prince and Princess Anne's daughters, uh, children, have set themselves free, they're not um, given HRH titles. Uh, that's what Princess Anne wanted. They carry on normal lives. This is what happens in other countries. The European mon mon um, monarchies around the place, the, in in Belgium, in Holland, in Sweden, in Norway, they have a much narrower royal family, far fewer involved. Even the Japanese are cutting back, and the others who aren't in the direct line of succession, go off and do normal things. You find them in supermarkets. Um, they have normal jobs. I was in Sweden and getting chatting to this woman at a party I was at. It turned out five minutes into the conversation, she was a member of the Swedish royal family. You can't imagine that sort of in informality occurring in this country, but why not? The answer, of course, is that we have an imperialist monarchy, uh, just like it was before 1918. The other imperial monarchies disappeared, the Russians, the the French before that, the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians, we're left with ours. The rest of the, the monarchies in Europe are modern ones. Why can't we have one of them? Yeah, but why have a monarchy at all? Why can't we elect uh, a president? I mean, this, this book, uh, the first few chapters persuaded me uh, that uh, really it's time to look at this question uh, afresh when Her Majesty uh, dies because, um, you know, as you point out, in the First World War, the, the fact that the war was being fought between three grandsons of our Queen Victoria, the fact that Kaiser Wilhelm was an officer in the British Army and uh, the British King was an officer in the German Army or the, the Russian Army and so on, um, they had to change their name uh, to uh, the more uh, English-sounding Windsor. It's entirely made up. It's all made up, Norman, is my point. Of, of course. Uh, of course it's made up. And some of the uh, so-called traditions are actually re relatively new. The sealing of wills to prevent us knowing what's going on, that's a relatively new tradition. These coaches that go at four miles an hour, uh, you know, from down the mile, one of those was built in about 2011, I think it was. You know, it's all fake, really, to be honest with you. It's all pebble dash well, stuff. tinsel, yeah, pebble dash is a better way of putting it. Because, and, and, because it, it's, it's actually rather vulgar in the end. 
Well, I think it is. But, you know, if people want to have coaches for going down the mall, they can have that. If they want to go and visit Buckingham Palace, they can do that. If they want to have the change of the guard, that's all fine. But, you know, you don't have to have a monarchy to have all those things. In fact, if the monarchy wasn't there, Buckingham Palace could be open for longer. You know, the palace, I'm asked sometimes, you know, what about the money they bring in? Well, do you know the, the, the palace in Europe that brings in the most money? It's Versailles. And they got rid of the monarchy in France in 1848. So we don't actually Rather need... brusquely. <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm not, I'm not advocating that, of course. Not at all, but, neither of us. But, but, I mean, you know, there is, um, there is of course, a case for uh, a republic. Um, and, of course, what's happening at the moment is that people feel some affinities towards the Queen. People, by and large, feel she's done a good job. I think she's done quite a good job, given the constraints. She's 93 years old. She's still trying to do her best in her own way. She's summoning uh, the, 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 the errant offspring to a meeting tomorrow, it seems, in order to try to um, sort matters out. So she's still doing her best. Nobody wants to rock the boat while she's still there, except that the people who are rocking the boat are uh, Princess Harry uh, and uh, Princess And Prince Andrew. Well, uh, here's my prediction. Uh, this book is going to sell and sell because this brouhaha is not over. It absolutely is not over. Uh, it will not be over even if they make a deal uh, tomorrow at these talks. Because I've just seen this evening a video of Prince Harry actually pitching his own wife, Meghan, pitching to the head of Disney to try and get her a gig uh, doing a voiceover for a Disney film. We're in for an unending stream of that kind of embarrassment, Norman. So, sounds like a Mickey Mouse uh, monarchy to me, what you're saying. <laughs> now, Look, even, I mean, you, even you and I, if volunteering ourselves for a job because we've all got to live, we would do it a bit more subtly than that. Well, you know, it's a bit like the it's a bit like the comparison between John Major and Tony Blair, if you like, because both of those and all prime ministers go away and make money after they stop being prime minister. And you know, in a way, there's no objection to that. John Major did so by very quietly joining one of these merchant banks in New York that those ever heard of, really, uh, and no doubt made a lot of money doing that. Tony Blair went round the, the world with a, a T-shirt on saying, "I'm for sale." You know, there are ways of doing these things. Perfect. Well, I, I've got to say, it's a terrific book, Norman. I, I mean, I, I've loved your previous work, but this is a really terrific read. For those that don't know anything about where our monarchy came from, the, the, the deep and dark secrets uh, that they uh, share long before Prince Andrew and Prince Harry began to embarrass them, it's really extraordinary. It's better than The Crown, than Netflix's uh, The Crown. Norman well, Baker, you, author... What, what, what? Yeah. Before you before you shut me up, let me just say one thing, which is I think the uh, the ticking time bomb for the monarchy is is not all this Epstein stuff, and it's not even Harry. It's the finances. The finance they're very very vulnerable on the finances. They have been ripping this country off big time for a very long time, and when that comes out, the public won't be very happy at all. Well, there you go. There's a prediction from Norman Baker, uh, author of And What Do You Do, Norman Baker, my former parliamentary colleague. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Poll 2 is uh, now live. Who do you support? A, Meghan and Harry, 18%. B, Her Majesty the Queen, 36%. C, Abolish the Monarchy, 46%. Vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. In the event of the travesty in Iraq, do you see a third-party anti-war candidate 
on the rise in the event of a Biden nomination? And if Sanders were to garner the nomination, can he successfully pivot as the anti-war candidate? I believe yes to the last point, and I think also to the earlier point, Patrick. If, uh, if the Democrats uh, pick some stumer, some plank of wood uh, as their candidate, they fully deserve somebody better than that candidate uh, to run against them. Councillor James Ball says, do you think the Pentagon might save the world from a Trump versus Iran retaliation saga when it comes to it? And Mara says, do you think Russia will help Iran the way they intervened in Syria? And do you think that would be a good thing? The answer is I don't think they will militarily uh, involve themselves in Iran. Hassan Diwan says, how does the General Suleiman funeral compare to the one for Khomeini in 1989? Well, it looked uh, just as big uh, to me. Gary and Megan from Glasgow here love the show. Our four-month-old baby Rory is listening too. He loves listening when falling asleep. Thanks for the great show as always. Hail, hail. Well, Gary and Megan, hail, hail, marking you as uh, Celtic supporters. Uh, I was extremely anxious when I discovered that in the middle of all this, and after the Iranians had promised to wipe out Dubai, to discover that Celtic were there on their winter uh, break. Let's take a call from Westminster, Mandy. Go ahead, Mandy. Hi, George. Um, Hi. I'd just like to make higher. Yeah, I'd just like to make this point about the whole um, sort of royalty sort of saga. I mean, I'm no royalist myself, mm. but the reality of this is none of this would have happened if it weren't for British mainstream media's pathological hatred and racism, which they continually point at black women who, you know, capable black women living in the UK. So we saw it you know, during the election campaign prior to the last one we had, the target was, you know, uh, Diane Abbott. She's an Oxford graduate, but obviously she's thick, she's stupid, she's ugly. These are the things. And then we have it again with Meghan Markle, who's, a, you know, yes, she's Hollywood, but she's quite accomplished. She's a good speaker. There's a, she's highly intelligent, highly trained. And they just, you know, it was just, Months and months and months. When did that start, music. though, Mandy? Tell me when that started, because I the wedding, <laughs> uh, the, the wedding was slavish, wall-to-wall -wall love for yeah, her. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was with the father and the sister, you know, pulling up points. But then we've just had, as a black woman, I mean, it's been quite traumatic, I think, for most black women living in the UK, just to live through this whole experience of picking up the paper and continuously seeing articles written by the establishment, wealthy, white, middle class, upper class, white, educated journalists continually spewing out negative Hate. Very uh, often women journalists, by the way, man. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, there's no, there's no solidarity between women. There's no feminism when it comes to black women. We're a target. So the whole thing, I mean, now it's just been glossed over. They've turned it into a constitutional issue. But the reality is, it's all to me, it shows, as a, as a black woman living in this country, born and bred, this country is endemically racist. For very often we've been told, oh, it's just the working classes, it's their racist. But the reality of this is most of those journalists that have done this, that have victimised this woman to the point that she wants to leave the country, are highly educated. They're on 60, 70,000, you know, big 
big salaries. Why do they keep doing this? You know, a lot of black women are traumatised now. I mean, I'm triggered. You know, the reality for us is in England, as a black woman, it is difficult to get a job, even as a manager. I mean, I, I look at America with envy. In America, a black woman could be a manager, a CEO, etc. Over here, there's so many economic limitations to how far we can get on in life. And this is just an example of it. It's just, it's just absolutely disgusting. You know, it's really, really upsetting. I can tell that it's upsetting. Mandy, Mandy, that's a a really terrific call, and it was really important to get the perspective uh, of a black woman in England uh, on that subject. And uh, I could feel uh, that you are uh, upset by it. Thanks for the call. Sean in Leeds, let's hear from him on the Iran issue. Go ahead, Sean. Hi there, George. It's great to speak to you again. And you, sir. Yeah, um, I'd just like to say that when Trump and his gang murdered General Soleimani, they actually murdered the General Zukov of the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. It was as important as that. Maybe even more important in the sense that uh, General Zukov never had a political role. Uh, But uh, General Soleimani was effectively the second man in Iran. He was, most certainly, and whereas General Zhukov stopped the Nazi hordes at the gates of Moscow in 1941, General Soleimani stopped the ISIS and Al-Qaeda hordes at the gates of Baghdad in 2014. Exactly. And the only people that are going to be dancing in the street at the death of General Soleimani are the terrorists who were hold up in Well, they already declared uh, their thanks to President Trump for doing it. ISIS, yeah. ISIS and Al-Qaeda have publicly, they produced a meme uh, congratulating President Trump for the murder of the man who was their hammer. He was, most certainly. And the other gang that will be celebrating, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's supporters in Tel Aviv, they're the only ones that will be dancing in the streets. And when Trump mentions about the American armed forces being so superb, it's rich coming from a man who actually dodged the draft of Vietnam well, I with having that, bad uh, ankles. Yeah, yeah. And um, yet, it, it hasn't his, stopped his, him uh, from trudging around his golf course. Well, almost every day. Uh, in fact, he's hit a new record. George W. Bush was quite a golfer. Uh, but Donald Trump has outgolfed George W. Bush. Uh, his bone spurs that stopped him from going to Vietnam when drafted have not stopped him uh, or been any kind of handicap uh, to him in his golfing uh, career, on his own golf courses, endlessly advertising them. Yeah, yeah. And can I just mention about the British ambassador who was arrested at uh, the anti-government demonstration? Yes, I see there's now a, a big demonstration outside the British embassy. He's very yeah, lucky. I, the, I, he's very yeah. lucky. The Iranians have not expelled him. If the Russian, well, the, if there was a riot yeah. going on uh, in the centre of London, and the Russian ambassador was found there helping to coordinate the crowd, do you think the British would not kick out the Russian ambassador? Well, exactly. Could you imagine what would happen if the Russian or American, uh, Russian or Iranian ambassador? was actually attending an anti-fracking match or a well, right-to-work yeah, demo. Well, yeah, that would be what one would thing. That would be one thing, Sean. But this demo was called, under the slogan, Death to the Regime. Bring the regime down. This demo intends to bring about the end 
of the state of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and he's our ambassador to that state. Now, that well, is man, unprecedented. The man is obviously an idiot. Yeah. He's obviously an idiot. Well, especially as poor Nazanin, especially as poor Nazanin is in danger in that prison. And Britain is staging a provocation like this by this well, idiot may, ambassador. She may never get out of prison because of this idiotic behaviour by a so-called ambassador. They're a complete embarrassment to the United Kingdom of these people. You're right, Sean. Look, thanks for the call. A terrific one, mate. Hussein is in Cyprus. Let's go to Cyprus, why don't we? Go ahead, Hussein. Hello, George. Yes, mate. Uh, wonderful job you're doing, by the way. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Mate. Thank you very much. Okay, now I've got a bit of a little, little bit of a grievance with this word regime. Yes, it's, you're right. You're it's, being right. Put for, it's being put forward by the mainstream media. It's being promoted by them, basically. I mean, we've got a lot of tropes and uh, loaded words going around. Yeah. I mean, one of them. One of them is this word regime. I mean. And you seem to be falling into the trap as well yourself, George. Yeah, I did a couple of times. You're right. You're right to pull me up about it. There is an issue as when something is a regime and when it is a government. Uh, our uh, prevailing orthodoxy is simple. Uh, if we don't like them, they're a regime. If we do like them, they're a government. Hence, Saudi Arabia is a government. Uh, Iran is a regime. You're right. That's the prevailing orthodoxy here. Yeah, but sir, don't you think that pe people like yourself, influencers as you are, mm. you're, you're, you are an influencer. Mm. Me, me, I'm not an influencer. You as an influencer, you have more of a duty to make correct matters like this. I do, I do, and uh, I, I apologize uh, to you. Uh, you're correct to uh, pull me up about it. I have, I think, a, a more uh, credible and uh, intellectually... Uh, defendable attitude. It tends to oh, be yes, this. Sir, it course. tends to be this. W when a government is elected, it's a government. When it is unelected, it's a regime. How about that for a definition? That is very sensible. Now, the Iranian government, the Iranian indeed. government is an elected government. The Saudi regime is not elected by anyone. In fact, if you went out on the street, and called for an election in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. you would literally be crucified before you were beheaded. Well, uh, yeah, right. I think they very prefer the beheading bit. No, they crucify now too. They, they crucified oh. some young children uh, from the eastern uh, province uh, just, uh, I think, last year, early last year. They, they do like a bit of crucifixion uh, in that regime, but nobody in Britain... Nobody in power in Britain calls uh, MBS uh, the uh, deputy head of a regime. They, they talk exactly. about the Saudi monarchy or the Saudi government. I mean, it's, it's just not, not just the word regime, for example. I mean, even the word Islamophobia, it's a fear of Islam. It's, it's uh, promoted as some kind of, it's promoted as something that should be feared, or it's a fear. No, it's never promoted as a hatred of Islam. So when it comes to anti-Semitism, it's anti-Semitism. But when it comes to Islam, it's Islamophobia. 
Okay, so, Hussein, yeah. uh, thanks. Uh, it's a yeah. great call, but I've got a lot of people on the line, so I'll need to say goodnight to you in lovely Cyprus. And I need to go to Benidorm, where John is on the line, with whom I've clashed before. John, welcome. Only a minor clash, George. Only a minor. I, I enjoyed agree. it. I enjoyed it. I agree with 80% of what you said. What you say generally. So do I. So do I. Yeah. I agree yeah, with 80% but, <laughs> of what I say. But I, I, can I just pick you up on a couple of things? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, what would your attitude be if the Americans are shot down an airliner by mistake, in inverted commas, some mistake, isn't that one reason that we should stop Iran ever getting a hands on a atomic bombs. If they can make silly mistakes, what did they say? They missed. They mistook it for for a, a American cruise missile. Well, look, John. Uh, John, l luckily, uh, we don't have to look in the crystal ball uh, for my answer to your question. We can read the book. Uh, the United States has shot down several passenger airliners. It has done. You must know that. You're not a young man. You must know that in the 1980s, uh, the uh, SS Vincennes, the American warship in the Persian Gulf, shot down an Iran Air civilian aircraft with more than mm. 350 people on board, 66 of whom were children. So the United States has done it. Is that a reason for them not having a nuclear bomb? No, no, no. I, you know, I'm, I'll just I'm, I'm making my point. Your criticism of the Iranians uh -huh. doesn't seem very forthright. And you could, this, can I just no, think? no. Well, let, well, let me uh, restate my position, then I'll let you back in. I said it was a ghastly military blunder. But unlike President Reagan at the time of the Vincennes shooting down an Iranian Airbus. The Iranians have at least immediately admitted it. The Iranians have apologized for it. The commander of the unit says he wishes he was dead and has been asked to step down. Iran's going to compensate the victims. The US and President Reagan never did. There's some quite important differences, John. Okay, yeah, I'll accept that. I was ignorant of those facts, and I'm glad you've told me about it. Good, I'm going to quit. I'm going to, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead, unless you force me to take one more point. Go on. A couple of points. Uh, picking up on things of what you said today about regimes and governments. Yeah. Hamas, the representatives of the. Palestinians in Gaza yeah. have not had an election for nine years, apparently, well, about that time, <laughs> because they think it's unnecessary. Uh, well, uh, at least they had an election. At least they were nine, elected. Nine, when, nine, when's the election in Saudi Arabia? Well, well two wrongs don't make a right, uh, George. <laughs> when when do the mean, Palestinians uh, living under yeah, uh, Israeli all, all occupation my... get, get an election? All my point is... You've got a blind spot about the Palestinians, John. It's uh, no, quite clear no, now. I, I, it's quite clear listen, to me now. No, 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 no. I, uh, I sympathise with the Palestinians. Well, I always you have. say that. I just Arafat, think they're being Arafat let down by never, the leaders. Arafat never had an election. 
Arafat never had an election. No, our, in my humble opinion, Arafat concerned himself, concerned himself with things he should never have done. Yeah, we know that because you said that last week. Uh, I'm going yeah. to leave you uh, there. Enjoy Benidorm, speaking English, of course. Uh, Joshua is in London on Scotland. My goodness. Joshua, go on. Oh, hi, George. Ha uh, Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Happy Year New to decade. you. Thank you very much. New decade, yes. S uh, started yeah, much like the old one la uh, ended. Yeah, as well, yeah, as well. And blood uh, and thunder. Transition, tra transition period, really, isn't it? You know, in that regard. Let's hope. Um, yeah, well, um, I was just wondering, uh, on the issue of, um, you know, the, the Scot Scottish question, which obviously isn't going away, OK, um, I was just, I was just wondering. Do you think, though, that some of the SM, the SNP have had some achievements over their twelve-year rule? Do you think they're going to weaponise them, like Name the them. university education? Name them. Sorry. Name their achievements. Just only the university free tuition and the free yeah, well, prescription. What, what, what about the state of Scotland schools, uh, which, uh, unlike Scotland's universities, are overwhelmingly attended by Scottish children. Yeah. The state of Scottish so, education is a cat catastrophe. Uh, we were famous for our education. Uh, now yeah. our education is considerably worse uh, than it is in any other part of the British state. Yeah, no, no, I know. And I'm not defending them, George. I'm just mm. worried that people are going to start thinking, well, if they... If they've done even a couple of bits of good in that regard, yeah. you know, then no, they're nobody part thinks about the vast people. majority of Scottish people yeah. aren't involved in free university tuition fees. The vast majority of Scottish people are suffering in the their children are suffering in the Scottish schools. Uh, their sick are suffering in the state of the Scottish National Health Service. Actually, the SNP are quite likely to lose power at the next election. They've already lost it, in fact. They, they don't have a majority. They depend on the Scottish Green Party, which is the Greens with a kilt on. Uh, they depend on that. And I think that, the, mm. that, that they will lose still further ground. Their only asset, actually, in Scotland is the fact that the Labour Party uh, is so pitifully weak and supine uh, that they, they have basically, in many parts, of the country an open goal to shoot at. In other parts, the Tories are giving them a run for their money now, especially under Ruth Davidson when she was the leader. If the Tories had any yeah. sense, they'd do anything they could to get her back. Yeah, well, she, she was one of the few Tories I actually did like, to be fair, George. Well, I never, I never liked her, but, uh, but she, she yeah. was uh, very effective and she, she has made the Tories the second party in the country, Labour, is a very distant, poor third in the country. No, I never thought I'd ever I'm, say that. No, well, it, it's not good uh, for Labour in that regard. It's got to be said. I just no, but uh, you think that the SNP are not left wing? They purport to be, and I don't actually think they are much. I mean, mm. if they want to rejoin the EU, then they can't be left wing exactly, in yeah. principle. Yeah. I honestly don't care whether they're left wing or right wing. Although I. Uh, recognize that they're not the SNP that I grew up with, which was very easily described as uh, Tartan Tories. Uh, but I don't care yeah. whether they're left wing or right wing. They want to break up a small island 
of English-speaking people that have been grafted together like bone for well over 300 years. People that work for the same employer, join the same union, watch the same television, read the same books, read the same papers, magazines, follow the same national game, eat the same national dish, which is curry, by the way. Uh, it's just madness to break up uh, a small country in that way. I'm against breaking up small countries, aren't you? I'm against breaking up virtually any country. I mean, look yeah. at the Soviet Union and yeah. or the you know former Yugoslavia or the partitioning of India, which was done by the British, yeah. or the partition of Vietnam. I mean, even though I do agree that Ireland should have had independence from the UK, the way it was done was so unpopular, the, the partitioning, that they, the IRA assassinated its own leader for agreeing to it. You know, I think breaking up countries is always a messy, bloody business. And, terrific, you know, terrific, Joshua. I, I need to move on. Yeah. Uh, very, very good call. Thanks for it. David no, is in Scotland uh, on the Scottish independence question. My goodness, where does all this come hi. from? David, go ahead. Hi, hi Mr. Gallery, how are you? By the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, Richard Leonard uh, today has been knocked back for his proposal to put on a new referendum, uh, Devo Max, or a federal uh, uh, option on our, our independence referendum by the Labour Party. Internally, he was wanting to do a one-day conference. It was in the papers today. And um, Richard Leonard has been turned down for this uh, proposal mm -hmm. to be put forward to the Labour uh, membership. I was just wondering what your thoughts were, Mr Galloway. Well, I, I did see that. Uh, my first thought is that Richard Leonard cannot be long for this political world. Uh, because yeah. that was his flagship policy, and his own members uh, just sunk it. Uh, so uh, I, I expect that the miserable, utterly miserable failure of his leadership is now complete, don't you? Yes, I think so as well. I think, uh, I think the Labour Party are going to be in big trouble at the, the Scottish election. Uh, one of the things, maybe you'll be able to explain this to me, um, Mr Galloway, because obviously you were involved with Labour a, a, a good number of years ago, but uh, why has the Manchester Labour Party put up a statue to Frederick Engels, who advocated genocide against the Scots and was with March was the inspiration for the deaths of up to 100 million people? Why well, I don't, actually, I don't actually believe in uh, any of that, and you'll have to send me any reference to Engels? Well, I will Google it after the show, but I have never heard Engels accused of seeking genocide against the Scots. Uh, so I'm going to leave oh, it. So I'm going to, I, uh, well, I might be on the internet, but that doesn't mean uh, necessarily. It's in the writings. It's in what? The writings that, what book? They're in the writings that which, which, which of Friedrich Engels' books uh, calls for the genocide of the Scots? It was, it was actually the writings in one of the publications for Marx. He actually wrote the article in one of Marx's. I think and he called Marx. for genocide against the Scots. Yeah, and the blacks. Right, I'm gonna, and, the I'm, and the blacks. I'm going to look that up. Not uh, the blacks. Not the blacks. I never said the blacks. What did you say? What did you say? I said the, I said the Basques. Basques. Um, Oh, Basques. Uh, not the Blacks. Basques. You think uh, the Engels... 
No, it's not a great line, David. That's the only thing. We're yeah, gonna sorry, have, sorry. We're going to have to talk uh, about this again because we don't have time to go into it now. Uh, but uh, uh, Frederick Engels was a very great man in my view. And his book uh, the, uh, on the history of the working class people of England and his uh, research and publications about the mass poverty that existed in the inner cities in the late 19th century in England will never ever be forgotten or should never ever be forgotten. I didn't know he wanted to kill me uh, and conduct genocide against the Scots and the Basques. Sounds like an unlikely tale to me, but I'll look. Now the poll has closed. Only 15% now support Meghan and Harry. That's down 3%. 37% support Her Majesty the Queen. And 48%, up to, support the abolition of the monarchy. 2,668 of you voted, and it's now closed. Let's take a call from Jonas in Copenhagen. We've been to Sweden. We must go to Denmark. Go ahead, Jonas. Hello, George Galloway. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Good to hear from you. Go ahead. I just have one message to to all the people. I'm actually Iranian, and... uh, I just wanted to, to tell the, the Americans and the people that just pull your soldiers out of the Middle East. You, you people have nothing to do in the Middle East. You are not Muslim. You don't speak the same language. Just leave the place. Just leave it for the people. This has been in many years. Why you don't understand it? This is simple. Nobody wants to invade other countries. Just leave and go home. That's the easy part. Because killing, killing these guys, the Qasim Soleimani, uh, this guy, this man, he was the man who fought against ISIS. And those people, they don't understand. They think all the terrorist groups like Taliban, like Al-Qaeda, is the same. No, you have to understand between this and this and another. Well, you're correct. Uh, and and uh, I have now seen the videos of CNN and CNBC and CBS uh, who uh, did interviews and uh, produced clips eulogizing uh, General Soleimani for his role in defeating ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Iraq and even some uh, in Syria. Uh, only th- they're all of three years old, these videos. And, yeah. you know, you heard me say earlier that a little knowledge is dangerous. The secondary, uh, uh, the sister, the twin of that attitude is uh, the, the total loss or lack of historical memory. Some people, a large number, never saw the clips from three years ago or did see them and forgot them. But when the drums started beating that they had to say that Soleimani was himself a terrorist rather than the killer of the terrorists, they all fall into line. Straw hats and trumpets. It's like watching people marching off to the First World War. I've got to take another call, Jonas. Good night to you. Darius is in London. Go ahead, Darius. Yeah, hi, George. Just, just a quick point. Um, the, you're talking about the, 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 the millions of protesters on the streets of Iran mourning the death of uh, General Soleimani. No, yeah, there were mourners, uh, mourners, yeah. Yeah, and, and I've, I've made this point on Twitter, and um, I think it's important that your listeners understand as well. The, the people on the streets were there mourning uh, Soleimani, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were supporting the Islamic uh, government. That so they were mourning. So they were. Uh, hold on, in, in, hold on. I'll let you back in. 
So they were mourning the commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the right-hand man of Ayatollah Khamenei, the second man in the state, but they weren't, nation, they weren't necessarily supporting the Islamic Republic. You're having a laugh, Darius. I'm not a soul, George. I'm not a soul. The Islamic Republic is deeply unpopular in Iran. The Iranian well, people at, do not. It the Iranian like people it, do it, not want these Islamic rulers. I know you keep. I, I, I know, look, I know you're in London, but this script comes from Albania. If you're telling me that millions of people were on mm -hmm. the street mourning the commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps but they don't support the Islamic Republic, you're yes. either lying or you're talking no. through a hole in your hat. No, 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 George, I think you have, um, you have, you have pro-regime uh, people on your show. You're, you're clearly, uh, you know, a supporter of the Mullahs, and you, dis and you ignore the fact that they killed protesters in their hundreds only in November that were protesting against the, mm. the state of the country, that the Mullahs have mm. caused mm. this uh, despair amongst the people. How and is Albania these days? How is Albania these days? I have no idea what you're on about. I'm in London. You got I'm Iranian, George. I'm you, Iranian. You, I know what's going on in my own country. Uh, and you also know what's going on in Albania. I have no idea what you mean by that. Really? You're not much of an Iranian then. You don't know that the MEK terrorists are based in Albania? Paid by yeah, the United that, States? What's that got to do with me? I'm not well, pro MEK. Because you're shooting... I'm pro you're shooting, you're shooting I'm pro their breeze. George. You're shooting their breeze. Your, your talking points are their talking no, no, no. points. No, it's not. No, it's not. I am. Well, I am you're anti, accusing me I am of being with the imperialism. You're, I am not. I am, I am not pro-American intervention in the Middle East. I'm not talking about the Americans. I'm talking about the MEK. You said falsely that I am a supporter of the mullahs and their regime, and I'm Correct. not. And that kind of talk is right out of the stable of the MEK in Albania that you pretended you'd never heard of their camps. In Albania. I've heard of the MEK. But, but, so, but no you didn't know they were the based MEK. in Albania. Them. You didn't know they were based in Albania. I find no, okay, that, I, I find so that what, hard what, to what believe. What's that got to do with me? Have, What's like, that got to do with no, me? I'm just amazed that you as an educated, intelligent uh, uh, Iranian did not know that. Anyway, no, it's been... No, I'm saying what's that got to do no, with me? Uh, well, you're deflecting, George. You're deflecting. No, no, The, the, no, the, the Islamic no, regime you're is lying, not popular. We want you're democracy. You're lying about... We want democracy. Do we you? do not want these well, Islamic the rulers. Well, the best of luck, Darius. Get your tin hat on and get yourself back to Iran and fight for it. Why don't you? It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time, same place. Good night.